Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. We're in the middle of a series of discussions about cancer genomics and technology trying to improve cancer treatments. We started this series with a discussion with David J. Stewart, professor of medicine in the Division of Medical Oncology at the University of Ottawa and the Ottawa Hospital. David recently wrote a book titled A Short Primer on Why Cancer Still Sucks, in which he covers everything from cancer therapies to comparisons between care patients receive in the US and Canada. These are the two markets where David has clinical experience from. The other system's perfect. Canadians only get what they pay for, and the Americans pay far too much for what they get. And uh, the American system fails the young and the underinsured, the uh, minorities and the poor. The Canadian system fails older people who cannot get rapid access to the things that they need. So neither system is perfect. In the second episode, we looked at the promise of genomics, data management that's needed in oncology for research with José Fernández, genomicist and up until recently the chief data officer at the Institut Curie in France, which is one of the leading medical, biological and biophysical research centers in the world. Single cell sequencing enables you to sequence an individual cell. And that's very important when it comes to cancer because we can start sequencing those cells which are in the interface between the tumor and the host and the patient. And if you can identify which genes are activated in those patients, that's the immune response. And you can identify which cell types are present in that interface tumor and you get a better understanding of how our immune system it tries to, to fight the tumors. And if you understand the normal journey of a particular cell, you can detect when those cells get out, get away of their normal way, and that is the interception. You can predict disease just before it happens. And that, in cancer, could be associated with liquid biopsies. In today's episode, you'll hear a bit more about precision medicine in oncology, drug repurposing, and the increasing challenge precision medicine poses for clinical trials. I spoke with Tuvik Becker from Israel. Tuvik is the CEO of Pangea Biomed, an Israeli-based company tackling oncology drug development and treatment recommendation by not only looking at the single mutations in tumor cells, which the pharmaceutical industry has already identified targeted therapies for. Pangea Biomed tries to understand the broader gene activation patterns inside tumor cells and recommend a therapy that would help exploit cancer cells' defense mechanisms. After this episode... Two more discussions are going to be published, so do stay tuned and subscribe to the show to be notified about the next episodes automatically. Your other option is to subscribe to our newsletter. It's only published on a monthly basis, and the next edition will summarize this cancer series. Find the link to the newsletter in the show notes, see the previous editions, and subscribe to get the new one in your inbox. Now let's dive in today's discussion with Tuvik Becker. 
Uvik, hi, and thank you for joining this discussion about precision oncology and how Pangea Biomed is approaching the issue from a new uh, point of view. Just before we start, I would like to clarify a few basic terms that are often used in precision and personalized medicine and solutions that help make this a reality. So, Precision is one thing. It's all about targeting very specific tumor gene mutations and targets inside the body. But when we're talking about personalized medicine, we're talking about how can we tailor a specific treatment to a specific patient. And that doesn't necessarily mean that that patient is going to get a targeted or a precision therapy. So just to have that clarification clear. When we're talking about precision uh, medicine and precision treatments, it's great for the patients that benefit from it, but that's actually less than 10% of cancer patients just because different patients react differently to medications and there's still a lot of improvement that needs to be done when we're looking at the right patient for the right drugs. So can you explain through your observations and your research, how do you see the challenge with precision medicine and where does then um, Pangea Biomed fit in? Sure. Sure. First, thank you again for the opportunity to talk uh, to you about these issues today. And thanks for the excellent introduction. I think the distinction that you make between precision medicine and precision oncology in particular and personalized medicine is indeed, it's true and it's often uh, overlooked. And what we're trying to do in Pangea is actually a combination of treatment nomination, which is both highly precise, and highly personalized. And as you say, in oncology, we've got very precise, specific, targeted medications. They started appearing around 20 years ago uh, with the better understanding of the genomic mechanisms underlying cancer cell biology. And uh, they sometimes do miracles. So these are really effective drugs for some patients. But the problem is really the vast gap that occurs where most of the patients, around 95% of the patient population, do not benefit from these wonderful drugs. And this is so because the current paradigm of precision oncology relies very heavily on actionable mutations and other rare genomic event. If you're lucky enough and you have one of those few actionable mutations, then yes, we may match you with a particular drug that would target that very specific mutations. But there are two problems here. First, these mutations are by definition rare. They occur in a small minority of the patients. And even if one is lucky enough to have one of them, very far from being perfect biomarkers. So if you have such a mutation and you get a matched drug, it doesn't mean that you're very highly likely to respond. In fact, the response rates are still around 30-40% overall for patients who get a matched targeted or precision drug. And this is exactly the the gap that, that Tangia is trying to solve by looking at, at the problem and at the available molecular data from 
a different angle. Can you explain the angle? So how do you sure. actually do it? Because we talked about the genetic mutations and I think speaking generally, the perception is that you just do genetic testing and you tailor the treatment to the information that you get with that. What's your approach and how right. do you see the whole field of pharmacogenomics that we must emphasize is not what you're doing? <laughs> right. As I said, the main problem with the current approach is that for most patients, if you send tumor sample to comprehensive molecular profiling, you would come up with multiple observations, many abnormalities typically, but only a small fraction of those are actually actionable mutations. So most of the time, the report would come back with no matched drug. And what Pangea does is move away or expand the aperture, looking not only at mutations in potential target genes, but looking at the broader activation patterns across the genome. And these are discernible by using messenger RNA sequencing. So instead of looking only at DNA sequencing, which tells you what the genetic code looks like in the patient's tumor, We are looking also at the messenger RNA sequencing, which tells you how um, specific genes are actually expressed in the tumor, which is a very big difference. Because when you look at any tumor cell, one thing is very striking, and it's very common. In every tumor cell that you examine, there are several mutations normally, okay, the the quite a few, which is a much higher mutation rate than in healthy tissues. But there's an even more remarkable phenomenon, and that's the fact that there are hundreds and sometimes even thousands of different genes which are normally encoded, so there's no defect in the DNA, the code is intact, and yet in the tumor these genes are abnormally expressed. So they're either significantly overexpressed or they are significantly underexpressed compared with a normal tissue. And this is the place where Pangea focuses in order to find vulnerabilities of the tumor that can be attacked therapeutically. So in essence, what we're doing is instead of just looking at the target of the drug, the gene that a highly specific drug is targeting and asking Is there a mutation in, in that specific target? We are looking at a broad neighborhood of other genes which interact functionally with that target gene. And I'll explain in a moment what that means exactly. And we are asking a, a question of, does the gene that we're targeting with the drug have functional environment which would make the treatments that we're trying more effective or, on the contrary, such a functional environment that would actually help the tumor resist the, the treatment and find bypass mechanisms by which to survive and thrive and multiply 
despite the the drug treatment that that we're using in order to stop its progress. Uh, there's quite a lot to unpack there, and we'll dig uh, deeper into the explanation because we're not. I'm not an oncology specialist, but as a follow up question, if I try to look at this from the patient perspective, so let's say you have a patient that will get a recommendation for treatment with your approach. How does the patient see that? The patient comes to the hospital. What happens next? What's different from the patient experience point of view if you want to just assess the recommendation? So from a patient's perspective, current molecular profiling reports usually list the variants that were identified in the tumor, and they sometimes go on to link those variants to specific therapies. Okay, If a patient has particular mutation, the report would say drugs X, Y, and Z were found to be effective in patients with that mutation. They may give some statistics, et cetera, et cetera. And it's left to the oncologist to decide, okay, out of the various options, which drugs I'm, I'm going to use in this case. In the case of the Enlight report, the report is built a little bit differently. What we do is we screen over 80 different targeted therapies and immune checkpoint blockade therapies. And for each of these therapies, we assign a number, a score, which is called the Enlight matching score. And that score essentially tries to, to capture the answer to the question, how likely is this very unique and particular tumor to respond to a treatment with that very particular drug? Okay, so this is based on that transcriptomic analysis that we perform that tries to understand the whole dynamics of the functional neighborhood of the target genes that are affected by the drug and how that reaction would look like in that individual patient's tumor. So the bottom line is a prioritized list of treatments, some of which would have a high N-light matching score, and we call these N-light match drugs. Some of these would be neutral with intermediate scores, and some of those we would call N-light unmatched receiving very low light matching scores. And we've shown in extensive retrospective analysis that those light matching scores are actually highly correlated with responses of patients to the treatment. And how does the whole research look like? Is it, does a patient need to undergo an additional blood test? Can you just use the existing data that you already have about the patient? From that perspective, I was just trying to figure out uh, yeah. what's the difference for the patient. Yeah, sure. So basically, we can uh, produce the Enlight report in any case where the patient has a recent biopsy, which was sequenced for DNA and RNA. So in, in many molecular tests currently available, only the DNA is sequenced. That's the more common scenario. But there, there's a growing number of, of tests by various commercial labs and also hospital and the research institute labs that in addition to the DNA sequencing, which is most often done on a panel of genes, there are various different panels, each lab has their own variant of that. In parallel to that, a growing number of labs are also offering RNA sequencing, messenger RNA sequencing, which gives us the information that we need, namely the levels of activation 
or different genes in the human genome. And that's the substrate that we need. That's the raw data that we're using. So if a patient has already undergone such a test, we can reuse that raw data to produce our Enlight report. And we actually offer this service currently pro bono. Any patient who has a test from known molecular lab that does perform RNA sequence can send us that raw data and we will reanalyze and produce the Enlight report in addition to the molecular analysis that the patient has already received. So let's go to the data sets that you're using and have used to even produce the whole scoring system. Can you tell me a little bit more about that, about the partnerships that you have? We are still talking about treatment recommendations, but that's just one of the things that you do. So we'll talk about the new approach to drug discovery as well. But first, if we still stick to the patients and the treatments, is because you mentioned that this is pro bono, does that mean that you're still trying to really determine what's the reliability of the models? How are you working with mm -hmm. uh, the institutions that you're present in? No, so it's not that because we're still trying to determine their reliability, we will always continue probably to, to improve and refine the algorithm, but we already have very extensive validations which were published in, in top scientific journals for, for the utility of this method for treatment domination. It's just that currently our commercial focus is, as you said, on collaborations with pharma companies and not on this clinical personalized medicine approach. It may come in the future, but we're currently just providing that as a service to the community, to the patients, to, to the oncologists, etc. With respect to your question about the data sources, so initially when we just started out, we started with publicly available data sets. There are lots of in vitro data sets that we are using in the inference stage of our algorithm when building the networks of functional relationships between genes. And then there are also many data sets. Perhaps the most well-known of those and the one that we started with initially is the TCGA, the Cancer Genome Atlas from the National Cancer Institute. But since then, we've had many different collaborations, both research collaborations and collaborations with hospitals, with clinical centers, and also with pharma companies. And in most of these collaborations, we are also gaining data. So we're acquiring data sets that we are allowed to reuse in order to improve and refine our algorithm. So by now we have a very large curated database containing hundreds of thousands of data points for in vitro and in vivo data. So data from cell lines and from model animals and many tens of thousands of data points taken from actual patients and also from healthy subjects whose tissues were sequenced and analyzed. And that's the basis for the analysis. And it's growing steadily. So it, it 
keeps growing all the time. If you move to the drug discovery and the detection of new potential therapies, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Drug discovery is expensive. Clinical trials are extremely expensive. On the other end, just because we have new techniques for diagnostics and analysis, there's more and more AI involved in in silico trials mm -hmm. and just trials trying to get to new findings about approaches that could be taken when looking for a treatment for a patient. So in your case, when we're talking about drug discovery, what's done just through simulations? What kind of simulations are you producing? And how much of that is then transferred to actual lab experiments? Yes, and light can be utilized at different stages of the drug development process. And uh, maybe I need to retrace a couple of steps back and, and explain something which is key to Enlight's differentiation in that respect. And, and that is the fact that Enlight is actually, it can be separated into two different layers. One is the inference layer where the question that we're asking is not will drug X be helpful for patient Y? Okay, it's not a drug-specific or therapy-specific question. What we're asking is rather, what are the functional relationships between different genes? So if gene A is underexpressed and gene B is overexpressed, what effect would that have on the cell viability? Would it improve cell fitness or decreased cell fitness? So that's the basic question that we ask at the inference stage. And the important thing to understand here is to answer that question, we can utilize all of the data that we're gathering, which is not necessarily treatment specific, okay? So the answer to that inference question does not rely on any specific treatment. And that means that there's a lot of data, okay? The, um, Second stage is when we want to predict the response to a particular treatment within a particular tumor, particular disease, etc., etc. And the nice thing about it is that there we are not doing any training again on particular disease. What we're doing is we're looking at the gene interaction maps or cancer vulnerability maps, as we call them, that are produced by the inference stage. And looking at those activation patterns, we can assign an Enlight matching score to any treatment. So in the whole process, we do not need to have any clinical data from a particular drug in order to be able to produce predictions for that drug. Okay, so this is in very strong contrast to any attempt to develop supervised learning biomarkers for a new drug by looking at clinical trial results. And the limiting factor here for those classical AI approaches, is it's just that data is usually not available. So you can do that for drugs which are already in the market and you have a lot of data for them. But for a newly developed drug, you simply don't have that kind of data. But for Enlight, this is not a limitation because we can build our inference networks, and we can perform the prediction stage as long as the drug is clearly characterized in terms of which genes it affects or which 
proteins, which are the products of these genes, it, it affects. So if, we, if the drug developer can characterize the drug, then we can step in very early on in the process and we can build a highly predictive uh, transcriptomic biomarker that would say which patients are likely to benefit from the drug and which are not. So that's one use, building precise biomarkers. And that helps in designing clinical trials, in expanding patient target populations, finding the best indications, and also in finding the optimal combination therapies for your novel assets. Because as you know, most trials currently in oncology are not for monotherapies, but rather for combination therapies, combinations with other drugs. Another aspect is really the earlier drug discovery, finding new targets for oncological intervention. And that, again, derives directly from cancer vulnerability maps. We can find hubs in those vulnerability maps, which are not yet the targets of therapies, but could be potentially good targets if one develops a drug to attack those specific genes. If I try to simplify, does that mean that to a certain degree, you're also trying to help pharma companies repurpose the medications and just extend the, the existing indications that the drug has assigned? We definitely are doing that. Yeah, that, this is part of the collaborations that, that we have with, with pharma companies. I would say the three top questions that, that the pharma companies have and we are able to answer are within a particular indication, we know or we expect, we as the drug developer, yeah, we expect patients with a particular mutation to respond to our drug, but we see that this is not always the case. Some respond, some do not respond. So can you help us fine-tune that? Can you help us find a better biomarker? a more accurate biomarker than just the mutation? And specifically, can you help us expand beyond the patients with the mutation? Can you also find a subgroup of the patients who do not have the mutation that can benefit from, from our drug? A related question is, can we go to other indications? So we were thinking about our drug in the context of, let's say, breast cancers with a particular mutation, but Maybe there are bladder cancer patients or kidney cancer patients who can also benefit from it. Can you identify those populations and so we can expand the market for our asset? And the third question is really, okay, which are the best candidates to combine our drugs with? So which drugs are currently available in the market, which when given with our proprietary asset would act synergistically, would increase the efficacy of the treatment. Because right now it's really much a wild guess game. Okay, I have my drug, let's try it with some immunotherapy or let's try it with some common chemotherapy and maybe it would be beneficial, maybe not. So we can really optimize that process and find the synergistically acting counterparts. There's a lot to take in when it comes to precision medicine, and I guess it's really hard to grasp the complexity which you also described in detail, and that's just because thinking for a very simplistic perspective or approach, 
you have the target, you have the bullet for that target, and still it might not work for a specific patient. And it's difficult to really predict what kind of side effects different uh, patients will experience. There's definitely a lot of work to be done there. So what's the kind of the relationship between the research that you do to try to uncover all the mechanisms of a, a particular disease? So you mentioned breath, breast cancer and in one of the publications that you published, it's described that in among the different types of breast cancer subtypes in the triple negative breast cancer, you showed that that's actually a type of cancer that's susceptible to ferroptosis, which is a, to describe it simply, an iron-related cell death. So usually we hear about apoptosis, which is the programmed cell death, but this one is specific to iron susceptibility. So just knowing that this specific cancer could be susceptible to ferroptosis, how did that help you? And what? how was the whole process later on? Mm -hmm. What came out of that finding. Can you describe that process a little bit more? Yeah, you're bringing up a, a specific example. And I think in order to try and, and reduce the complexity, we can perhaps use a metaphor. You're saying we have the target, we have a bullet that should essentially hit that target. And indeed, in most failed oncology clinical trials, the problem is not that the drug does not perform the activity that, that it was designed to perform. Usually it does perform the therapeutic activity, and yet many of the patients or some of the patients do not respond as you would hope they would, or they sometimes initially respond well, but there is resistance. The tumor develops resistance to the therapy and continues growing. And the metaphor I would like to use for that is you have a group of players Okay, And you hit, let's say, the captain, but there is the support group around that player, and it may still win the game. And in our, in our analogy, these are the genes within the tumor. So in biology, you have a very high degree of redundancy. So when you hit a target, even if it's a very important gene for the cell, usually there would be redundancy mechanisms that would try to come in and cover up for the lost function, for the gene that was lost due to the therapy. And what we are trying to understand with our analysis is how strong is that support group. If we see that the support group is very weak, we would say, okay, here is a really good opportunity for therapeutic intervention. This gene does not have the strong support group. And therefore, if we hit it, we would really be able to selectively kill the cancer cells while sparing the healthy tissue. Whereas if this gene has a very strong support group, our, our chances of succeeding with that treatment are low. And then you can take it to the population level and you can like the case of the ptosis in triple negative breast cancer that you mentioned earlier, we can find subpopulations of patients where there is some kind of a pattern. But generally, in light, we do it on a very individualized basis for each patient with it, idiosyncratic activation pattern within the tumor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's exactly the marriage between the precision part and the 
personalized medicine part, both of them together. We discussed how the scoring system works and the data that you need. So just to recap, the Enlight platform combines AI techniques and digital pathology. And usually I'm just wondering how does this analysis look like from the doctor's perspective? Because you have a doctor who has a patient in front of her and needs to decide what that patient is going to receive as the next line of treatment. When your system comes in, is it does it work as a clinical decision support system that uh, the doctor needs to open up separately? Are you an embedded system into other systems? Does the experience for the doctor look like if they use your product? Oh, so first of all, you mentioned digital pathology, and I would love to, to touch on that because we, we do currently have uh, digital pathologies in development, but the classical and light and light match does not rely on digital pathology, but on molecular pathology. So input is the, the data from the sequencing machine. So the FASTQ files or whatever it is, the uh, read counts from the various genes. And from the doctor's perspective, the Enlight report is currently a separate report, like you're ordering a report from a pathology lab, whether it's an internal one at the hospital or the clinic, or you're sending a tissue sample to an outside lab, and you're getting a pathology report, and along with it, you can get a molecular pathology report. So there can be several reports coming back from the lab and giving you various insights about the patient's tumor. So Enlight would be another report highlighting the tumor from a different angle with the twist that it actually gives a prioritized list of therapies ordered by the Enlight matching score. Okay, so right now it's not integrated into the workflow. I agree with you, by the way, that this is a very important thing to solve, but we cannot solve everything. And there are very good companies that are working on interoperability and unifying the, the environment for the physician to integrate all the relevant pieces of information. Maybe to lighten up the discussion a little bit, let's <laughs> take a very broad just question. And that is, we mentioned pharmacogenomics recommendations for therapies just based on genes. We talked about your platform, but in order to work in this space, you obviously need to be aware of the trends and innovation that's happening in the space. So how are you observing the changes that are happening when it comes to decision support systems, therapies, and just everything that's related to oncology. So first of all, it's really exciting to be in a field that's undergoing such a fast evolution and progress. And you're right. And there are two areas in particular where we see very fast and very important progress in recent years. And we are actively working on both of these areas. And one of them is digital pathology, and the other area is liquid biopsies. And maybe I'll say a couple of sentences on each of these. In, in digital pathology, we're talking about getting pathology insights from images, basically. Okay, so looking at images of the tumor, in, in the case of oncology, what insights can we get by letting a machine look at those images instead of a human pathology. And there are many solutions in digital pathology, starting from very basic stuff, 
like just counting cells or finding the areas with which the pathologist should be concentrating on. So saving some of the manual labor associated with the pathological examination of a specimen and ending with solutions that actually try to do prognostics and diagnostics from examination of the image. And what we did with EnlightDP, and that's a technology that, that we recently published as a bioarchive preprint, and we're currently writing it up, a peer-reviewed uh, journal version, we've shown that we can do something quite wild. What we did in collaboration with researchers at the National Cancer Institute, we have a very strong collaboration with, uh, with the NCI and with a very strong AI group from the Australian National University in uh, Canberra. What we did was develop an architecture that looks at pathology images. So the pathology slides, it's called H&E stained, stained slides, common pink, purple staining that I think most of us know from textbooks or pictures on the web. And we turn those into expressions for all of the genes in the genome. So the first layer in, in that system tries to infer gene activation from the image alone. And this is by no means perfect, but for some genes, it gets it really nicely. For others, it's more noisy. And we take that and feed that into Enlight in lieu of the actual read counts coming out of the sequencing machine. And lo and behold, based on this method, which takes out the whole sequencing stage out of the equation, we just take the image and from it, we try to infer expression and we use Enlight to derive Enlight matching scores, we can get pretty good prediction of response to treatment. And we're still validating that on more data sets, but if we manage to, to validate that at scale, it's pretty remarkable because we're taking a process that costs thousands of dollars and takes several weeks and we're bringing it down to a very cheap and very quick test that we can, form, we can perform in a matter of minutes once we have stained slides from the tube. So that's one area of fast progress, digital pathology. Another area of fast progress is liquid biopsies. So in liquid biopsies, people take blood samples, so peripheral blood samples, normal blood samples, and they look for genetic material from the tumor in that. And there are many applications to that, finding recurrence of cancer early on, trying to understand which cancer exactly you have, minimal residual disease, et cetera, et cetera. And we are looking into harnessing liquid biopsies for actual treatment nomination, just like we do currently with Enlight from direct tumor biopsies, we want to be able to do that based on blood samples instead of biopsies. And I think within a couple of years, we'll be able to do that. And when we do, that would be really a, a big step forward because you would not need to undergo an operation or an ambulatory procedure in order to get a tissue sampled and sequence, et cetera, et cetera. But the, Still work in progress, but a very, very promising direction, I think, for the future of oncology. Where do you see the biggest challenges in oncology at the moment? 
Oh, there, there, there are many challenges in oncology. I think this really is one of the, one of the main challenges and, and one of the reasons why liquid biopsies are receiving so much interest is the fact that currently our ability to treat cancer effectively is hindered by the fact that we are relying on outdated information because cancer is not a static disease. Cancer evolves with time. The population of cells in a tumor evolves, and especially at advanced stages where the cancer metastasizes and you have different metastases, you have different cell populations, etc. And if you're relying on nine-month-old or a year-old biopsy in order to determine treatment, you're very far off from what this tumor actually looks like and behaves like. And yet, in, in practice, in the clinic today, that is the clinical reality. So the ability to invite the patient into the clinic, draw a couple of vials of blood, and make treatment decisions based on that would mean a really huge improvement in the accuracy of, of treatment one, once that vision is actually realized. And we haven't even touched upon the challenges with the pricing in oncology and the fact <laughs> that new treatments are getting more and more precise, but also increasingly expensive for patients. That's definitely a, a big fear. I totally agree. And in, in a sense, the, you're touching on a very important point here. With medicine becoming more and more personalized, there is an inherent difficulty in running clinical trials, because essentially, if you tailor the treatment very individually to the patient, then any treatment is basically an N of one, okay? A different patient would get a different treatment. So how do you conduct clinical trials in personalized medicine? I think that's still an open question, which needs to be properly thought out together with the regulator maybe we should change the way clinical trials are done so that what you're examining is not a particular treatment for a particular group of patients, but rather a particular treatment choice methodology on a group of patients, because each patient within that clinical trial would get a slightly different treatment. But what you're actually testing is not we give patients with these characteristics all one drug. We give each patient a different drug, but the methodology for the choice is the same methodology, and that's what's being approved in the clinical trial. But I think that's something that, that the regulators aren't there yet, and it's a discussion that, that is very important to, to have with the regulator. Yeah, that's a great point because when you've got a personalized medicine, everything is tailored to specific patients. And when, when you were talking about clinical trials, I just remembered how the pharmaceutical uh, industry gets blamed that when they're doing clinical trials, the criteria for inclusion is strict that in essence, when the drug is approved, because it was proven that it works for a specific subset of patients, you actually don't really know how that drug is going to react on a broader population and even how are you even going to look at the potential patients that 
might also benefit from the drug if they weren't included in the clinical trial. Yeah, I think these are different aspects of the exact same problem. And the only way to really solve that systematically is to understand that we should modify inclusion-exclusion criteria to rely on more sophisticated, holistic biomarkers and that it is these biomarkers, actually, that should be the focus of the clinical trial approvals. Can you really match treatments to, to patients and how you do that? It, it's a complex field that you're tackling. So maybe as a lighter end, is there a story or two that you can share that you still find inspiring that happened with the help oh, of sure, your solution? Sure. Oh, yeah, for, for sure. We are seeing it on a continuous basis. As I said, we, in parallel to our commercial activities with biotech and pharma companies, we are providing the light reports currently as a pro bono service, and we've been doing so for almost two and a half years now. And, and one of the really thrilling and encouraging cases was the case of a young woman here in Israel, Panjai's base in Israel, we didn't mention that, who was referred to us with a very rare type of liver cancer. And uh, no one, it, it's called a fibrolamellar carcinoma, and it, it is very different in various aspects from the normal liver cancer, hepatocellular carcinoma. It doesn't respond the same to drugs, and it has very different characteristics. And uh, this young woman, several different lines of treatment were tried in her case, and they all failed, and she metastasized the, her cancer progressed and the she did undergo molecular profiling but unfortunately the report came back with no actionable variants identified and at that point she was referred to enlight analysis and the interesting thing about the enlight report was it matched her with two different immune immunotherapies and the reason this was so remarkable was that there are three common biomarkers for immune checkpoint blockade, and all three of them were negative in her case. And nevertheless, because we are looking at this from a different angle, the Enlight matching score for these two therapies were very high. And her physician, seeing no other unexplored path, did try the combination of these two drugs, and it worked just like a miracle. And within, uh, almost immediately, within a month, there was improvement. Within three months, the PET-CT showed a significant shrinkage of the tumor. And within nine months, follow-up PET-CTs showed that she was uh, clear of the disease. And it's now over two years since she started treatment. And she's active. And uh, for all practical purposes, she is still clear of the disease and we all hope it it wouldn't recur. Given that you mentioned that the Enlight um, scoring is done on a pro bono basis, I have to ask if a cancer center wants to try this out, what are the limitations in order to actually test the system? We put in place clinical trial protocol basically and we just we don't perform the basic sequencing ourselves. So there should be a lab that does the sequencing, but with that in place, patients should sign an informed consent. They should understand um what is the benefit, the potential benefit of what we're doing and more importantly, what are the limitations. 
because it is, of course, limited to just every other analysis. And then we are very happy to collaborate and we're actively collaborating with many different cancer centers in the U.S. and in Israel and currently looking for collaborators in, in Europe as well. And maybe it's a good opportunity to mention that we are launching very significant clinical trials, both in Israel and in the U.S. And in particular, there's a big trial that's going to start in the fall, hopefully it all goes according to plan, at the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, which would examine and light prospectively at scale on a number of different cancer types. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast because it really, really helps other listeners interested in digital health find the show as well. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.